the first state, the diamond state, home of President Joe Biden, the world's corporate capital. Delaware is known for a lot of things, but its identity can't be painted with a broad brush. There are three counties, each with its own unique character, and within each, towns, neighborhoods, and individuals with their own ideas about what it means to be a Delawarean. This season, the Delaware Humanities Podcast, A More Perfect Union, explores the concept of identity, what draws us together as a state, what keeps us apart, and how we can ensure all perspectives are heard. This podcast is brought to you by Delaware Humanities, a state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Its mission is to strengthen communities by encouraging all Delawareans to be inspired, informed, and engaged through exploring the diversity of human experience. We thank the National Endowment for the Humanities for its support as part of its A More Perfect Union initiative, designed to demonstrate and enhance the critical role the humanities play in our nation, while supporting projects that help Americans commemorate the 250th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence in 2026. A More Perfect Union is produced by Delaware Public Media, Delaware source for NPR News. Thanks for joining us on the A More Perfect Union podcast. I'm your host, Tom Byrne. In this, our first episode, we begin our examination of what it means to be a Delawarean with an overview of what makes up the state's identity. And to do that, we welcome someone who has spent her career looking at questions like this. Anne Boylan is Professor Emerita of History and Women and Gender Studies at the University of Delaware. She spent 30 years teaching at UD and as a social historian of the United States, has researched and written about women's history, social and cultural history, voluntary associations, and religion. She has specifically spent a significant amount of time examining women's suffrage and its history here in the first state. Anne Boylan, thank you so much for joining us on the A More Perfect Union podcast. We appreciate you taking your time to, to chat with us. I'm very glad to be here, Tom. Thanks for asking me. So let's start with... Um, how would you describe Delaware's identity today? I know it's a pretty broad question, but are there some things we can say big picture that we have in common as people in this state? Well, of course, I, uh, I uh, approach this kind of question as a historian. Um, and so very quickly, uh, Delaware has a history of different kinds of identities, some of which stuck, some of which didn't. Uh, the most long-sticking one, I guess, uh, would be the uh, identity of Delaware as the first state, which is not very precise. Uh, it means that Delaware was the first of the original 13 states to ratify the U.S. Constitution. That doesn't fit on a license plate, as I tell my <laughs> students. And so uh, a lot of times people would say, oh, you were the first state. And if I'm in a sort of nitpicky historian mood, I'll say, there was no first state, there were 13 original states. But in any case, I think that identity has probably stuck the longest. Um, and historically, it's identity that is rooted in the colonial and revolutionary and uh, post-revolution uh, era of American history. Uh, nowadays, of course, uh, people think of Delaware when they think of our president. Joe Biden. They know that Biden's from Delaware. They may not know too much else about the state, but they know where, where Biden is from. Um, now, I moved here in 1985, and at that point, uh, Delaware was still uh, a company state, as Ralph Nader called it, 
um, because of the enormous role of the DuPont Company um, in Delaware, its, its name being everywhere, the large number of employees, and so on. Um, and so the DuPont Company, the DuPont name, but now, of course, uh, what DuPont was associated with, nylon and fertilizers and herbicides and so on, is completely gone. DuPont has moved out of the chemical business entirely and has moved, it's moving in, it's broken up, of course, and it has moved into, um, I guess, mostly electronics. But I actually kind of like the description that um, Alice Dunbar Nelson used back in the 1920s. Uh, she, you may know, uh, was a very polymathic um, poet, writer, journalist, teacher at Howard High School. Um, political activist, a suffragist, um, and she described Delaware in an important essay as a, quote, jewel of contradictions. That is, the jewel refers to the kind of diamond shape of the state, and then there's the, there are the many contradictions uh, of the state. Uh, to her mind, of course, some of those had to do with the history of Delaware as a border state between North and South. Um, East of the Mason-Dixon line, if you can uh, think of that. And, um, of course, uh, a state that held on to slavery, even though it remained with the Union during the Civil War, and didn't get rid of slavery until the 13th Amendment was ratified in December of 1865. So, um, it's, And then, of course, the 1897 Constitution uh, removed many of the restrictions on black men voting, but it insisted that Delaware schools be segregated. So that kind of set of contradictions uh, struck Dunbar Nelson strongly. And I think that's um, not a bad way even today to think about Delaware. I was going to say, I mean, when you talk about it being a state of contradictions, in some ways, does that also give a sense that the state's identity is still changing and evolving over time? And I guess that's probably something that happens with any state or any group. But is is that maybe almost another way of describing that? Mm Mm-hmm. Sure, absolutely. I think uh, that's, that kind of puts your finger on the main point. Uh, whatever identity uh, Delaware has uh, is is going to be changing constantly. And it's also going to vary in terms of where one lives in the state. There are different identities, whether you live in Newcastle or Kent or Sussex. Those change a great deal. We've certainly seen enormous amounts of change in Sussex County in the past 10 or 20 years, uh, moving away from a fundamentally agricultural county toward one that's large, not entirely, but um, heavily encouraging uh, tourism, uh, senior living facilities, and so on. Uh, and then there's also, you know, there, there are economic identities, there are political identities, and there are what you might call cultural or artistic identities. And those are also constantly changing in the state. I want to, and I want to try and touch on a few of those. And, and, and the one that you brought up is probably a great place to start, which is this kind of traditional geographic divide, the upstate versus downstate divide. Uh, right. from What I'm hearing from you is it, it sounds like perhaps while that still exists, that perhaps maybe that may not be as pronounced in some ways as it used to be, but then perhaps in others, like say politically, it may be, mm-hmm. be even more so. Exactly. Uh, I mean, it is, it's upstate, downstate, but a lot of people say it's above the canal, below the canal. Right. Um, and uh, politically, it has become a great deal more evident that Sussex County is just different from um, 
Kent and Newcastle, um, it, it, particularly in the dominance of the Republican Party, uh, which in many ways has a long history, but it's a different Republican Party today. Uh, and um, the um, kind of um, resistance to older practices, I'm thinking of return day, uh, which has been a long time practiced in Delaware, um, where, as you know, uh, after an election, uh, usually every two or four years, uh, winning and losing candidates meet in Georgetown. They ride around the circle uh, and they bury the hatchet. Well, um, in, I think it was 2018, uh, one of the losing candidates simply refused to participate. And that's considered not to be, uh, to use another phrase, the Delaware way. In politics, uh, we have for a long time talked about ourselves as a state that is moderate in politics, that um, follows a kind of a, uh, an idea that one compromises on issues rather than digging in one's heels. And, and for a very long time, um, the state had you know, a Republican governor and then a Democratic governor, right. uh, one Republican senator and one Democratic senator. Uh, the legislature was often divided, the House versus the Senate. And, of course, in recent times, the state has moved more to now both of our senators, our representative in the House, um, our governor, they're all Democrats. Uh, yet there's a strong Republican uh, presence in Sussex County. So I think that's an example of uh, some of these things that end up changing over time. Where they will go in the future, who can say, but um, we can certainly pinpoint some of those changes politically. And I was going to say, even in Sussex County, I mean, there, there seems to be a kind of a divide as well, that when you get more toward the beach areas, you may see some more pockets of, you know, progressive Democratic residents versus more conservative on the western side of Sussex County. And that, that it, it does seem like it, it is a very evolving, at least in terms of the political piece of it, where it's become, maybe it is a little less above and below the canal, and, and it is more just a philosophical rather than geographical divide. Yeah, that uh, I think is a key point to keep in mind that Sussex is not a uniform mm. county and uh, there are lots of different voting patterns and uh, voters and lots of new voters uh, coming into the state, uh, particularly retirees, as we know, in Sussex, but also um, people who migrate to Sussex for the jobs that are there in the chicken industry, mm-hmm. um, who are um, obviously going to be a good bit younger uh, than the retirees. And so you, those kinds of um, demographic patterns will have an impact on uh, the changing identity of, let's say, that one county anyway. You, you are, as you mentioned, a historian, and you look at a lot of things through the historical lens. Uh, I'm curious about, you know, beyond kind of the first state piece of, of Delaware's history, are there some other kind of historical keystones that, that define the state? I mean, you know, obviously going all the way back to, to the Swedes being, you know, the group that, that settled in Delaware. Are there some things that we look at historically that, that maybe help define Delaware? Uh, maybe not today, but have helped that kind of continuum toward what the identity is today. Right. Uh, sure. You know, Delaware, of course, was originally part of Pennsylvania. So um, you can talk about the Swedes landing in Delaware, which uh, you know, gets celebrated every 100 years or so. 150 years, 350 years, and so on. Um, there's a, a brief period when uh, there are there's a Dutch uh, a presence, uh, particularly in Newcastle. Um, then Delaware's role, of course, during the American Revolution. Um, and then uh, I would say Delaware's um, position in the Civil War makes it a particularly interesting moment in our history, 
where we are talking about the country being ripped apart and Delaware, a slave state, which has very, very few slaves by 1860, still uh, having to make a decision which direction does, is the state going to go? Is it going to be um, uh, Union uh, or Confederate? Decides to stay with the Union, but uh, in 1862 refuses um, the uh, offer of, of compensated emancipation for the small number of slaveholders and small number of slaves, and then waits until uh, December 1865 to um, finally, finally emancipate the small number of enslaved people in the state. Um, and then you get into the era of industrialization and corporatization, and I think Delaware's economy and its economic role really changes uh, at the end of the 19th century into the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, particularly with the rise of the DuPont Corporation, which had been relatively uh, focused and smallish and family-run, um, and then becomes very uh, big in chemicals, of course, and um, munitions uh, during World War One and also World War Two. Uh, so those are sort of signal moments in our history. Then, of course, uh, Delaware became known as a state, uh, as a corporate capital, one of the uh, terms that my colleague Carol Hoffaker used to, to describe Wilmington in the 20th century because of our easy incorporation laws. Most people, if they know something about Delaware, know that you know you can incorporate rather easily here and get a post box in uh, Wilmington and off you go. Um, and then uh, if we look at the post-war era, um, the terrific importance of Delaware uh, Air Force Base, Dover Air Force Base, um, because of the growth of a kind of a um, defense industry uh, which, from which Delaware benefited. Um, and then Delaware's position um, when it came to school desegregation in the early 50s, first a lawsuit that ended segregation of the University of Delaware, but then more significantly Delaware's place in the Brown versus Board of Education decision because there were two Delaware cases there um, that were appealed to the Supreme Court. And the unusual thing about the Delaware cases was that um, the, uh, a, a, a judge, a Delaware judge, had ordered the schools to desegregate, but the Board of Education challenged that, wanted to keep them segregated, in part because of the Constitution. And then, of course, um, that became part of the um, 1954 uh, uh, Brown versus Board of Education decision, which has had a dramatic impact uh, on uh, the state uh, and on the state's politics. No question about that. And does that kind of also, you know, almost, can you draw a line almost to, to the, the riots in Wilmington and the National Guard occupation of the city from that? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and how much do you feel like that kind of also started to play a role in shaping Delaware's identity, mm -hmm. particularly in, in its largest city, yeah, well, the uprising in Wilmington, of course, took place in the aftermath of Martin Luther King's um, assassination, and it took place during a period when Delaware was trying was working to um, implement the Brown decision. Uh, it certainly had an impact on Wilmington and on Wilmington's black community. Um, anybody who lived through that uh, remembers very well the occupation by the uh, National Guard. And um, although I'm certainly I'm not all that knowledgeable about it, I imagine it had an enormous impact in the development of the effort to desegregate the Newcastle County schools um, in the 1970s, and then to uh, lead to an effort to lift that 
desegregation order, which of course came uh, under Governor Carper in the late 1990s. So uh, I think Delawareans who live here, and particularly Wilmingtonians, have a memory, whether it's their own personal memory or a general memory right. of the uprising and the occupation. Absolutely, yeah. And certainly, and obviously, it's, it's worth reminding ourselves that, you know, Delaware uh, today, uh, Delawareans, uh, who, that is those who are born and raised here, constitute only 45% of the state's population. What? So we are a, a state that has to somehow provide an identity to people who weren't born and raised here. I was going to say, that was, you're going right where I wanted to go, which is the fact that Delaware has, particularly during that, that era where you know, uh, you have MBNA and, and, and the credit card companies that, that kind of came here and blossomed, they brought a lot of people into the state. And there is that kind of odd kind of like, are you a true Delawarean? Were you, were you born and raised here? Do you, do you identify by your neighborhood versus people who, who come into the state? And I, I guess that, that's also kind of an interesting piece of the evolution, too, because it does, I think it sometimes leaves some people searching for a Delaware identity as mm -hmm. they come in here. Right. Um, absolutely. You know, I don't, I don't think anybody has ever uh, done what Colorado has done, and that is to put together a license plate that says Delaware Native. Colorado has these license plates that say Colorado Native. Maybe the you know leaving the first state on the license plate is just about what we want to do, and that's just fine. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean, and so you, one of the things to think about is how do people learn about Delaware when they move here. Mm -hmm. um, and what are the ways in which we encounter the Delaware story? Now, people might say, well, you know, we don't have any sales tax. That's who we are. <laughs> uh, or we have a president of the United States, or we have easy incorporation laws. But I think going more deeply, we need to think about how um, people encounter the Delaware story. Now, of course, um, children learn Delaware history in fifth grade. There's a very nice textbook that, again, Carol Hoffaker, our, our wonderful state historian, uh, has written. But as in other states, most people encounter Delaware's story, Delaware's history by going to museums or historic sites, um, if doing what I do, which is to read historic markers, uh, attend commemorations, um, which get uh, you know, discussed in um, newspapers and so on, or even just uh, looking at the names of streets and buildings and uh, schools and other such items. Um, and there, uh, I would say, um, we, Delaware as a whole and the Public Archives, which is the, the, the um, curator of our history, has for a long time um, emphasized an earlier past as something that um, sort of maybe holds us together. Um, you know, there's old Newcastle, there's the John Dickinson plantation. Um, there's the importance of the green in Dover and the legislative and uh, judicial buildings that are there, the judicial buildings in Georgetown and so on. I think that's changing. The Public Archives has done, I think, a wonderful job of um, finding new uh, ways to commemorate the state's history. Just a couple of weeks ago, I was in Wilmington yeah. at the dedication of a historic marker to the Shad family, um, a, a very storied Delaware family with a long history of involvement in the abolitionist movement, um, a black family that moved out of the state because of uh, the role of slavery in the state this is in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s. So I, I think that's changing. But 
Uh, back to my point, um, if you learn uh, some of your history by attending commemorations or going to museums or reading historic markers, I think that's a more likely place to learn it than in even a fifth grade classroom or a college classroom or anything else. And that's why I think it's really important. I've been involved in um, getting putting together some historic markers for Delaware suffrage leaders. Um, and uh, let's see, this is a program that was put uh, together by a foundation from New York, the Pomeroy Foundation. And so we have eight markers that they have approved and seven are already up. Um, and the, the, the um, public archives, they have erected, um, let me think, uh, two historic markers in uh, Newcastle County for um, Delaware suffragists, uh, one in Dover, uh, one in uh, Georgetown, and a, a really uh, striking uh, monument uh, right outside Legislative Hall mm -hmm. in Dover. So, and, and of course, these honor not only white suffragists, but black suffragists as well. We're learning a great deal more about their role. And I think in general, um, we're starting to sort of redress the balance, shall we say, right. by right. doing more to acknowledge the role of black Delawareans in the state's history um, so that we, again, as, as you teach, with a monument or a marker or a commemoration, you get a fuller story than perhaps was once uh, taught. And is that a big piece of of the of, the of evolving the state's identity? Is going back and looking at these things that perhaps have not been discussed, have not been taught, and, and in some ways maybe have not even been revealed to people, whether it be, as you said, black history, women's suffrage, uh, how important do you feel like that is in, in the, the next two, three, five years to try and get people to just be more aware of, as you said, not just the kind of basic colonial history of, of, of the state, but all these other interesting nuances to what built this state and how it connects to the larger American story? Yeah, well, uh, I'm a historian. <laughs> of course, this is crucial. We need to tell the full story. Um, if the story of, of any state or any country is just, you know, a few highlights, um, a few um, statues of, you know, guys on horseback or whatever, um, you're not telling a full and complete story. And I think the rise of... Um, particularly black history beginning in the 1950s. I shouldn't say the rise of because there's been black history written by historians for 150 years or more, but particularly the teaching of black history in, in college and at, at the high school level, uh, the development of uh, the teaching of women's history. Uh, those um, trends in the historical profession, I think, must make their way out into the public arena so that we can bring the benefit of this sort of fuller, more complete story uh, to anybody who is interested and anybody who wants to listen, um, because uh, otherwise you're telling something quite partial. Now, there are times when it's going to be uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. There's no question that, you know, it, it can be very uncomfortable to learn about women who were anti-suffrage and who said, no, 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 don't give me the vote, and um, made racist arguments against giving black women the right to vote. That can make people uncomfortable. Well, but that's telling a full and more complete story uh, than perhaps 
um, we tell only when we hit a few highlights. And, and is that also important to a, a smaller state like Delaware because you have to have that full story because it's a more robust story? Because a lot of times I think, and, and it, this I think kind of goes all the way back to Delaware being originally part of Pennsylvania and breaking away to, to now being just a lot of people considering it the, the state I drive through on I-95, that there's this almost like an inferiority complex for Delaware that kind of runs through its history. Do you feel like telling that full, broad, robust history helps a state like Delaware with what at times can be a bit of an identity crisis? Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, you know, I think Joe Biden's election helped people at least to locate Delaware. <laughs> uh, I moved here in 1985, and um, people... In, where I lived before in Albuquerque, New Mexico, said, let's see, Delaware, that's near New Hampshire, right? <laughs> uh, so at the very least, people kind of know where Delaware is, and they do know where Delaware is when they drive through and they pay their toll. Uh, thank you very much. <laughs> and um, we get, um, uh, you know, the kind of in-betweenness, which I think is something that Alice Dunbar Nelson was talking about. We're still in between Maryland and New Jersey. We're still in between Baltimore and um, uh, Philadelphia. We can get our TV stations from Philadelphia or from Baltimore. Um, so that can contribute to a sense that we're a small state. We have a small population. Uh, we have only three electoral votes um, as compared to California or New York. Uh, something my students used to complain about. How come we only get three? Um, <laughs> and so there can be a sense as a small state perhaps shared by Rhode Island or some other smaller states, um, that people don't um, make the effort to learn something about Delaware. And so I think telling that fuller, more robust story is really important. Um, and one of the ways I think that um, is being done is to talk about Delaware's role, for example, in the Underground Railroad. Mm -hmm. um, and so when you have uh, Tubman Garrett Park uh, in Wilmington, when you have people understanding that in order to get to freedom, Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman passed through Delaware, and Thomas Garrett was assisting uh, Tubman in her work. Um, that kind of more general, as you say, robust story um, helps people to get uh, a kind of a pin they can put into a map in their minds. Oh, that's Delaware. Okay, that's part of Delaware's history as well as the no sales tax and the easy incorporation laws or whatever else people might think of when they think of Delaware. And I imagine as we start to wrap up, I mean, part of that is also not just telling those, those stories of the history around us, which are obviously crucial, um, mm -hmm. but also telling the stories of the people who live here now uh, and the diversity of people who live here now in a, in a state that is becoming very different looking in terms mm -hmm. of its gender, race, and even the age of people who live here. Right, yeah. As you said, and this is something we've been talking about for the past little bit, uh, you know, this is a constantly evolving history. It's a constantly evolving story. Our arts and culture are constantly evolving. People know, I hope, that there's a Clifford Brown Jazz Festival in Wilmington every summer. Um, maybe more people might know about Firefly, and like, oh, it's in Delaware, you know, and they're going to have... Uh, Green Day this year or whatever. Um, th those things constantly evolve, and it's really crucial that as those notions or those understandings change, that we have the sort of full, complete picture of our population, of the great diversity of the state, geographically, politically, but de demographically, 
and so you know that makes it a fun thing to do as a historian or as a historical interpreter because you see these changes and you're doing the work to try to bring it out to a larger public. So my final question for you is this, as we continue this conversation uh, throughout this project, what are maybe the one or two questions you think we should be asking or you know, people should be asking themselves about Delaware's identity to get a better grasp on, on what it is? Um, boy, that's a tough one, Tom. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, you can do things like you can, add, you can sort of do the gotcha questions, you know. All right, so who's, you know, uh, who's Alice Dunbar Nelson? If you don't know that, you can't be a good Delawarean. Or, um, you know, uh, where was Joe Biden born? Is he really from Delaware? I mean, I, I don't think you want to do that kind of thing. I think it's uh, useful uh, to ask people, as we were saying, um, h- how do you uh, envision the diversity of the state geographically, um, politically, demographically? Um, how do you see the roles that various people play in our arts and culture? Uh, those kinds of questions can perhaps elicit a fuller view than I would have of you know, your, the interviewees' understandings of the state's history and politics and culture and so on. Anne Boylan, Professor Emerita of History and Women and Gender Studies at the University of Delaware. Thank you for joining us on the A More Perfect Union podcast. We really appreciate your time and we appreciate your insight. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for listening to this episode of the A More Perfect Union podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Delaware Humanities, a state affiliate of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Its mission is to strengthen communities by encouraging all Delawareans to be inspired, informed, and engaged through exploring the diversity of human experience. We thank the National Endowment for the Humanities for its support as part of its A More Perfect Union initiative, designed to demonstrate and enhance the critical role the humanities play in our nation, while supporting projects that help Americans commemorate the 250th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence in 2026. A More Perfect Union is produced by Delaware Public Media, Delaware's source for NPR News.